Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 21st, 2021. I have to tell everybody uh, listening to my voice, uh, some of you probably know my parents or the identities of my parents, uh, Norman Podhoritz and Midge Dechter, and today is their 65th anniversary. They've been married 65 years today, and I'm very glad that they met and, in fact, got married for obvious existential reasons. Um, and I think the world uh, owes them a debt of gratitude, and it is, in fact, one of the world's great marriages. So happy anniversary to them. Uh, it is also, uh, we are 31 days away from our commentary roast, the 11th annual commentary roast this year of Rabbi Mayor Sully Soloveitchik. Go to commentary.org slash roast21 to find out how you can get tickets to join us in New York, live and in person with hundreds of other people. Finally, uh, you know, having dinner, drinking, celebrating, having a good laugh. Uh, it's our um, it's our most important fundraising event of the year and something that a lot of people really, really enjoy. So please either email us at um, roast at commentary.org or go to commentary.org slash roast21 to find out more. We have been going this week and we'll continue to go through the week and next week discussing our big woke, the threat issue, the discussion of the revolutionary philosophy that is um, attempting to change America from the uh, inside out. And we are honored, thrilled, uh, and bemused, I will say myself, bemused to have with us today my friend, commentary contributor, author of an article called Destroying Commentary. Destroying commentary. <laughs> you wish you were destroying yes. commentary. Destroying comedy in this issue. Uh, writer, director, comedy legend David Zucker. David, the reason, and I want to thank you for coming, and I want to just mention one thing because I mentioned it yesterday to a friend of mine. 41 years ago, last summer, uh, I spent the summer as an intern at the American Spectator magazine in Bloomington, Indiana, where it was then located. And I was there uh, pretty much by myself with one friend for seven or eight weeks. And at the one movie theater in town, on Kirkwood Street, there was a, they had two screens and two movies were playing there. And this was at a time at which they didn't show nine movies a week. And uh, I saw two movies there over and over and over again because it was the only thing to do in Bloomington, Indiana in the summer uh, college campus where there was nobody and there was just me being an intern at this magazine. One was The Blue Lagoon, of which not much should be said except this is a movie that if you attempted to make it today you and every single person involved in the production would go to jail for 50 years and airplane uh david's legendary breakthrough movie he made with his brother jerry and jim abrahams um i was already familiar with your work because i was a huge fan already of Kentucky Fried Movie, your first film, which you made also wrote with your yes. brother and in Jim Abrahams, directed by John Landis. In which we spoofed uh, uh, that, that uh, Blue Lagoon. Ah, so there you go. So there's so uh, a real connection with you. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, so Kentucky Fried Movie, uh, the piece that you've written for us, David, and I should introduce my, my fellow uh, podcasters here, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, Kentucky, you in destroying comedy, uh, you 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 lay out the simple fact that uh, as you've told people who say, uh, you know, boy, could you make airplane today? And you basically say, of course we couldn't make airplane today. I think that even that would be even truer of Kentucky fried movie, which is an even raw uh, and, and more more, even at the time though, the term didn't exist politically incorrect comedy. Yeah. yeah right. Okay. Wouldn't you say? Well, yeah. Kentucky fried movie was far more insensitive and uh, it, dirty. It was, 
Yeah, well, it was dirty. Yeah, a lot of a lot of young boys got their first view of naked breasts. It was wonderful. But um, but now you can't see that all th- sorts of things would probably be read into that. Like you know, it's you know exploiting women. I mean, we said you know it was racial stuff. I mean, they you know there was that this one uh, sketch called Danger Seekers where the guy just okay. Yelled- yeah, this is important. If you yeah. remember, you had a pilot. You have a, not the pilot, but like the 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 head the head of airline security in airplane, played by Robert Stack. Right. His name is Rex Kramer. Rex yeah. Kramer is a character in Kentucky Fried Movie. He is Rex Kramer, oh. Danger Seeker, right. and we that. can't even describe the scene in which Rex Kramer goes to find danger because right. he goes yeah. into the inner city. Yeah goes into a into a bad neighborhood and screams a word and then is chased by people he's in a he's in an evil Knievel outfit yeah right he's, he shows up he stands in the middle of a craps game he yeah. screams the word that can never be spoken and then is chased through the neighborhood by by the people who are playing craps but it's so funny it's such a nice bit because the actors in it were obviously black people. It was like, yeah, everybody was participating. It, it was like everyone was having fun. It was, I, I'm ashamed to say it's like, it was an era where you could do that. And, and it was, and, and no one even thought any people just could laugh. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure that's, that will, it, this, that era will return again. Uh, you know, once we kill all of the people who don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> is that is that the only solution? You is know, the I actual mean, is the actual killing of all the people with no sense of humor? You know, that, that's a joke that I used in the article, of course, but but I think and I just I, I don't think that much before I write anything. But I think what it means is that I think what I meant to say is that um, those people who don't have a sense of humor, which particularly offends me, you know, if somebody doesn't have a sense of humor, it's it's horrible. But I don't think there's any cure for it. I think that's what I'm saying. I want to quote to you. I want to quote to do you the credit, not only of quoting your, your great jokes, but your article, which can be read, of course, by everybody at commentary.org. Um, you, dis- you, you describe your your work this way humor happens when you go against what's expected and surprise people with something they're not anticipating like the new york jets winning a game but to find this surprise funny people have to be willing to suppress the literal interpretations of jokes in airplane lloyd bridges's character tries to quit smoking drinking amphetamines and sniffing glue if his addictions were to be taken seriously, there would be no laughs. Many of today's studio executives seem to believe that audiences can no longer look past the literal interpretations of jokes. Fear of backlash rather than the desire to entertain seems to be driving their choices. I admit that their fear of audience retaliation is not entirely unwarranted. There is a very vocal though I believe small percentage of the population that can't differentiate between glue-sniffing joke and glue-sniffing drug problem. So right now we have had this week-long or more than week-long controversy involving um, Dave Chappelle, the comedian, and his stand-up special at, at Netflix, which was the subject of a protest by Netflix employees yesterday I think there were about 20 out of uh, 9,000 Netflix employees or 900 Netflix employees in L.A. or something like that. So it really wasn't much of a protest. Yeah. But uh, Chappelle, of course, is a comedian telling jokes, though his jokes go dead at sort of political issues. And uh, the purpose of this, obviously, is to uh, intimidate those very executives that you're writing about into not doing anything more the like this Dave Chappelle thing that they've that they that they've already done yeah I mean I, I haven't seen it yet but um, I, I I'm not sure exactly what what he said that that's so uh, but it was probably 
that you know glue sniff sniffing level of joke, which you know is is um, you know out there, but it's uh, I'm sure he was making a point, but I don't think I, I don't think that in in his uh, stand-up routine he's being cruel. Uh, it, it, it's like you know we had a, we had a joke in uh, in airplane that we actually did cut because we thought it it went too far. A lot of times I get asked, you know, is there some some place where you can go where it's too far? And, and the answer is, I mean, yes, there was, we had a joke in airplane. We wrote, it was, uh, it was uh, air Poland, please clear the runway. And it was uh, the pilots, we cut into the cockpit and it's Stevie Wonder, uh, Ray Charles, and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, one other guy. Yeah. One other and blind guy. One other blind, famous blind yeah. uh, singer. Um, and and so, it was. I mean, it's funny, but um, I, I'm so glad that we cut it because somebody somebody called from the Anti Defamation League and said that uh, this uh, in this this joke. There, there are a lot of young kids that are growing up who are Polish who were, had a really a bad self-image because of all these jokes. And, uh, and it kind of made sense to us. And so, um, and, and so I think we, we made a brief argument. I think it was my brother, Jerry, who was talking to this guy at the time. He said, well, you know, we, we criticize all ethnicities and religions and races in, in the movie. And, uh, like there's there's one bit about the uh, how about this pamphlet famous Jewish sports legends, and uh, and he and the guy said, well that's not good either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, it's there is a line, and and I thought and I thought and I thought then and I think now that 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 joke is fine, but I'm really glad that we didn't do the Polish joke because I think, you know, those Polish jokes were, I guess okay during the 80s or something I mean it was not that they were okay but people did it and uh but I think you know in retrospect I'm glad that airplane didn't have Polish jokes so there is you know there's a big say, distinction my, well let me just real quick on the sure. Polish joke thing my grandmother's Polish and no one made more she said Polak actually she made more Polak jokes than anyone I know so there was within the Polish community there was plenty of self right. uh parody but well your self parody your self parody itself like not only do you have the Ju greatest jewish sports legends pamphlet but of course you do have ll airlines uh, israel airlines will you clear the runway and there's a plane wearing uh, uh with um payas and a right, yeah right. uh the, but that uh, was not see but uh, that's not a, i no it's just silliness but it's nonetheless yeah that some deficiency perceived deficiency. right Right. Entire and, and that is not the argument that is made by these activists. There's a level of condescension in, on display in these in this kind of activism because they don't argue that it's just offensive or rude. They argue that it could incite violence. Now they don't think Dave Chappelle is going to go out there and execute transphobic attacks on people. They're afraid that you might impressionable sap that you are. And not, that's sort not of an inherent. Not you, David Zucker. You, the you, American the audience people. member who's listening to this podcast. I, yeah. There's a David there's Zucker. A, I, David Zucker known in Brentwood for inciting violence and knocking over. Wouldn't put it past the yet. market, the Brentwood market and all kinds of. Well, things. I did almost incite violence once I, I was, you know, with, <clears throat> with my uh, then wife, I, I was building a house in Brentwood and, uh, it, and we, we tore down a house that was there. Uh, and, and we were, and we're building a new house, but it was very nice, you know, traditional looking house. But we put up, I put up a big billboard in front of it saying on this site, uh, you know, a new house designed by Frank Gehry. And it looked like Disney Hall, it, you know, and it was horrifying. And, uh, and it's like bring, bringing a little downtown class to Brentwood or downtown sophistication. <laughs> And the neighbors went were up in arms, and they organized a committee. <laughs> so, and I had to tell them it was, you know, 
Frank Gehry joke, not Frank Gehry. <laughs> <laughs> that Gary problem, right? Yeah, that might have been justified yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a violent response to that. There was a, a very famous essay in The New Republic by a guy named Seth Simons, who is responsible actually for dredging up a podcast in which a, a, a former SNL guest was making insensitive remarks and eventually forced SNL to dissolve their relationship. So he has scalps to his name. And the essay alleged that a form of humor in the early 2000s called cringe humor, which leverages unspeakable events, racism, sexism for humor value, was directly responsible to, to a decade and a half later for the January 6 riots, meaning that this court kind of comedy incubates an antisocial sentiment that can manifest in violence among the wrong people. And rather than police those people, you have to police the humor. And that's essentially the, the argument that's being leveraged by who you deem the nine percenters, a very small minority that is nevertheless punching above its weight to try to get humor extirpated from the public square. Yeah, well, this is all scary. It's very scary that that's being taken seriously and people are actually promoting that because it's just, it's Stalinist. So, you know, it's it's not, this is a real sea change if it gets be above the, the 9%. I think- well, I just want to be, David, when you make the point about how um, there's nothing actually cruel in airplane, um, I think that's an important point. And it goes hand in hand with a point you make in the piece where you say comedy needs to be reckless to some degree. And I think there's an important distinction between recklessness and cruelty. And the the policing of recklessness now, I think, is an interesting topic because it goes beyond comedy. It's sort of you you can't t make a misstep in any area of uh, your life or discourse. Um, and I think the but it but it leads right back to the comedy question, because that's kind of part of the fun of living is is allowing some room to be a little reckless, you know, and it's also how sort of new things are discovered. Um, Absolutely. I uh, yeah. mean, I Comedy has to be reckless. I don't I don't know if I did I say that in the article. I can't remember. Yes. Okay, I mean, I'm paraphrasing it, but but yes, you said you you you're, you're ghost on the writer. need for you're ghost oh, whatever that was. I was right. Yes, I agree. Well, of course. Yeah, by, 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 by definition. Yeah. yeah, you were so reckless in writing it. You don't even remember writing that part. It's just it's a wonderful article in contrast with the rest of the issue. Yes. Um. You know, I, I'm struck by this this point about uh, recklessness and cruelty because, of course, there certainly is cruel comedy. I mean, you know, not not it's not ethnic or necessarily, but I mean, there is like Don Rickles comedy. You know, oh, Don Rickles, cruel. Don, Don Rickles cruel. was yeah, cruel. Is and yeah. and and he invited people to laugh at the spectacle of him taking down and being incredibly nasty to somebody he didn't know that he had just picked out at random in an audience. That's one, that's one sort of like element of humor. And the other is um, my, my colleagues here are not really old enough to remember this, but if you watched Ed Sullivan, you watch comedians and Ed Sullivan in the sixties, it was often so drained of recklessness. It was, was so careful so that it could be, so appealing to, you know, the audience of 30 or 40 million people who watched it, that the humor would be just about what it was like when some idiot husband didn't know how to put soap in the dishwasher or, right, or, or uh, how, you know, women just pay too much, spend too much at the department store. And uh, and it all just like it, it, if you watch it now, you sort of can't believe this was the this was the sort of lingua franca of American comedy. Even somebody like Jackie Mason, who was screamingly funny when he was on Sullivan before he had his incident where that where he got banished. These routines are all in a very narrow band, very, very careful, because the lines of what was acceptable in mass audiences was very carefully delineated. And that was all exploded in the 60s. Through the 60s, through the 90s, it was all exploded, right? You were you were making these movies and making the Police Squad TV show and all this at a time at which the idea was, if it can be funny, you're fine. Yes. You are, you're excused. If you get the laugh, the laugh can be, a, as you say, you didn't want to do the Polish joke, but in general, the laugh could be about anything as long as there was a laugh. 
Right, and that was always, and for us, and it continues to be, um, you know, the, the laugh is the, uh, you know, that, that, that is the, what the criteria is, if, if it's going to be left in, because we, you know, when we write the scripts, it's our best guess. And, you know, we're, we're not right 100% of the time. And if something really is offensive, if it's, if the offensive quotient goes above the funny quotient, then people really won't laugh. They'll kind of gasp and that's, and we, we cut those jokes out. If, if we ever do go too far over the line in it, but we don't need the government to censor us or any, or the mob or the nine percenters. Uh, it's, it's really because people actually, humans, when they, and, and we show airplane even, you know, today, or at least right before the pandemic struck, we, we were showing it to live audiences and people still laugh, you know, that and top secret, we, we show the naked gun. People laugh all the way through. It's not like, uh, you know, some of the critics, uh, you know, of, of, of my article have said, you know, yeah, airplane would not be funny today. And oh, but, yeah, literally yeah. not, not the case. So can I just say, for, so my sons are 15 and I had them watch all of these movies. Um, they love the Naked Gun series in particular. And I swear, I, I, I'm not being completely hyperbolic here. I think they under finally understood contraception because of the scene where Leslie Nielsen <laughs> and Priscilla Presley are kind of going at it with full body condoms on. Like that yeah, stuck right. in their mind as, as sort of tweens and, and, and was a very good and, and a good public health messaging, I think, much better than what our <laughs> well, that, professionals that's do. What, that's what you intended. But I just want to say the tolerant to the point of tolerance, which I think is what a lot of the activists these days think they're doing, promoting tolerance by stopping people from making jokes that might offend. In fact, real humor, the reckless humor we're talking about, the kind of stuff that, that you've written and spent your career uh, producing are, in fact, that's the best vehicle for tolerance, because if people can laugh at themselves and others can understand what's funny about it and join in the laughter, that deeply human experience is what promotes tolerance versus what tolerance goes by today, which is you have to agree with me and you have to endorse everything I do. That's actually not tolerance. That's authoritarian. Well, I just want to I just I, I found the quote and uh, from the piece and, and that gets to it. Uh, so let me just, I'll just read it um, directly. David, you write, comedy requires a certain amount of recklessness and comedy writers and directors need to experiment until they hit that perfect note where a joke can illuminate uncomfortable subjects by giving us permission to laugh at them. And that's exactly what the, it's not reckless, it's deliberative. So this, this movement is not against caustic humor or offensive humor, as long as it's the right targets. You'll forgive me, I've been reading a lot about this recently, but another essay I wanna cite by Will Sloan in Current Affairs, skewers of all people, The Daily Show host, John Stewart, because while he spent nine tenths of his career attacking Republicans, he didn't spend 10 tenths of his career attacking Republicans, quite unlike figures like Sasha Baron Cohen, who spend all their time meeting out uh, justice to the right targets. Now, as long as you're offending the people who deserve to be offended, according to this logic, this nostrum, then you're, it doesn't matter whether you're humorous or not, or whether the joke's funny or not, you're doing the Lord's work advancing a political cause, making something useful, even if it's not funny, as long as it's useful, it's valuable, it's social value is objectively measurable. And that's that's what's more important than the laugh for laugh's sake. Yeah, well, that's the, the Politburo uh, version. Well, let me let me ask you this, David, because you are you are um, a politically unorthodox person in 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 show business. You sort of took a kind of neoconservative turn um, in the nineties and the two thousands. And, um, and what you're describing here has sort of general applications. Like people, people are doing damage to comedy by cancel with, with this cancellation thing and this 9% of people being offended, destroying, destroying the chances for the other 91% to enjoy themselves and have a good laugh. But of course, this does seem to fall more heavily, again, as Noah indicates, on one side of the political aisle rather than the other. Um, I, I, you know, I'm struck by the fact that we have um, now, you know, it didn't used to be that way, but now it is. It's a total yeah. role reversal. Right. But in, in right. So in 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 late night television, for example, we have Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and 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 Jimmy Fallon to some extent, but but we can even leave Fallon uh, to, to one to one side a little bit. Um, 
And they all seem to be just taking the same swats at the same uh, comic targets uh, over and over again, if they are even swats. A lot of this, particularly, say, somebody like Samantha B. this is more like secular preaching. It's more like you're getting a sermon every night, a political sermon from a secular preacher telling you about the, the, you know, the evils that are being sort of uh, are being visited upon the country by, by people who don't share in the same old time religion uh, that you share. And on, on the one hand, that would suggest to me this huge market opportunity for the right and for people who don't have this position. And on the other hand, the money's got to come from somewhere and the money in show business comes from these large corporations that are filled with people who share those political views on the one hand and who are, I assume, terrified uh, that 20 people out, are going to protest outside their offices the way 20 people protested outside of Netflix's offices yesterday. Did, did Is that your experience? Those, did they fire all those people at Netflix? I'm sure they could replace them. and uh, that, would, that would be a happy ending. Are they going to fire them? I'm sure they're going to appoint them to a special diversity and and uh, and pain management committee. Far from firing <laughs> they, them, didn't they uh, threaten to quit or something? If they no, they just uh, walked out. Well, they, they just walked out. Oh. They just walked out. No, it like takes a Barry Weiss to quit and say, you know what, this 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 company is is uh, you know is pre is 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 involved in doing things and promoting things that I cannot allow myself to be associated with. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is saying. Uh, pay me while I tell you what to do. Yeah, right. So, Which is, you know, nice work if you can yeah. get it, I guess. That's funny in itself. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but your experience, let's say, because um, I know, I believe, you know, the movie you made 10 years ago, An American Carol, um, I assume you sort of had to, you had to go slightly far afield to get funding for that. Well, right. It was funded by a private person who lived in Beloit, Wisconsin, and ran a uh, you know a roofing material business, and just was very conservative. And the producer that I met, you know, and that that loved the script, uh, you know, gave this to this woman and her husband, and they loved it. And so it was independently financed and for fifteen million dollars, and. Uh, I mean, and I actually wrote it with a friend of mine, a high school friend of mine, who's really very far left, and but who's just a very funny guy. And he writes for Robert De Niro and, you know, every, any, if Barbara Streisand does a roast or something, they, they, he writes jokes for them. Anyways, very funny guy. And uh, so, you know, the concept was to make fun of the left. And we did that, but the the trouble we ran into was that, uh, you know, um, left leftists don't have a sense of humor about themselves and Republicans don't go to movies. So <laughs> there was no, there was no audience. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting one because I, I, I really, um, I, I really was, uh, it, it was before the election. And uh, I, I had like such a warped and totally bizarre view of my own power to uh, affect things. And I thought this could have, you know, make a difference in the election or something. It, you know, it's like, but all it did was kind of, you know, put me further uh, uh, as a pariah in, in Hollywood, but that's okay. I think I, I knew that Obama would be a disaster and, uh, and so uh, I, I was projecting like 20 years ahead of time when my kids would ask, did you do something? What did you do to try to stop this? As, you know, so, so that was, it was, this is my own bizarre world of like, I could affect things. So, you know, I saw, I, I, I showed uh, the Naked Gun uh, the first movie, the first Naked Gun to my kids yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. And I, I was struck uh, by the fact that, um, again, despite your political leanings, which were, I think were, were different then or something like that, but even now, speaking as somebody who is a big defender of the cops and police and all that, one of the screamingly funny things about the Naked Gun 
um, is this portrait of this absolutely demented, terrible cop who does all these deranged, lunatic, violent things, and 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 uh, <laughs> sort of, and and it's because you're making fun of cop movie conventions and t- particularly TV cop show. Uh, conventions, but if you take Frank Trebin uh, on his own and you watch it now, decades after those those movies and those cliches and conventions have gone away, what you get is this portrait of this well-meaning lunatic who should never be allowed anywhere near a, a gun, naked or otherwise. Which again is sort of the point of comedy. Like you should be able, even if you love the police and hate defund the police and all of this, to uh, laugh at the prospect uh or you know or to take or to understand that there is something worthy of satire in a world in which you know uh an individual police officer can in theory run amok but our our movies really had nothing to do with real police or any kind of reality it was like totally there was this uh television show in the late 50s and early 60s called m squad starring lee marvin and if you ever watch that, I mean, he's wonderful. Just so dead serious, you know, no, no humor escapes at all. And uh, so that's what uh, Leslie Nielsen's character is based on. Right. Is that, and Clint Eastwood in, in Dirty Harry. But I got to, I got to, uh, actually, uh, before, I, before I go on to ask you some other questions about your work, um, I want to commend to you and to our audience uh, Dan Senor's uh, post-corona podcast. You've heard me talk about it before. Uh, you'll hear me talk about it again. Um, this week, Dan has on Adrian Wooldridge, uh, noted British uh, columnist for the uh, for the Economist, uh, historian and um, popular critic, uh, who has written a full-throated defense of the idea and the necessity of meritocracy. And in this really fascinating and thrilling hour-long conversation on the Post-Corona Podcast, which you can get if you go to Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you will, I'm sorry if you hear the sirens behind me, uh, that's one of the costs of doing a podcast here in Midtown Manhattan. Um, uh, If you listen to this podcast, you will discover uh, or, or sort of be enlightened by uh, Woodridge's um, perception or his his uh, argument that the secret of the success of of the West over the last three hundred years is precisely the rise of the idea of meritocracy and the and the structures that have allowed individual individually achieving people to excel from a young age using all sorts of modalities that are now under attack, in particular testing, uh, separation in schools between the gifted and the ungifted, and, um, and, and, and a culture that looks to pluck out from, uh, from the masses uncommonly gifted types who might be able to advance uh, our, uh, the economy, science, uh, and ideas all together, and that this is the secret uh, sauce of Western success over the last three centuries, and it is now at risk and under attack, and uh, why that is a great danger. So please go listen to Post-Corona with Dan Senor. Go to Google Play, Stitcher, Apple, whatever, and listen to this conversation <laughs> and be part of the congregation uh, that listens to Adrian Wooldridge and Dan Senor discuss this matter uh, on the Post-Corona podcast. Uh, to, I just want to talk a little bit about, about, about politics and your work, uh, because even long before you sort of uh, had your political awakening, you made what is likely the greatest uh, anti-communist comedy of all time, uh, maybe next to the death of Stalin, which only came out a couple of years ago, uh, which is an entirely different kind of movie, but but Top Secret, which is your bizarre uh, Elvis Presley uh, uh, Cold War spy drama parody uh, with uh, uh, Val Kilmer 
Um, one of my favorite movies, the one of yours that um, got away in some sense and for some reason didn't pop the way Airplane and the Naked Gun did. Um, but uh, if you haven't seen this, go watch it tonight. Find it. I don't know what streaming service it's on for free. You can get it, I'm sure, on Apple for $1.99 or whatever and rent it. Because among, among other things, this is a comedy about uh, an attempt to escape from East Germany about uh, uh, prisoners who are who are who need to get the hell out of East Germany and um, made at the height of the Cold War made in the early 80s. Right. Yeah, it was uh, unconsciously a yeah anti-communist movie. I don't know. We we didn't have an agenda. And certainly I was a good Democrat at the time uh, because my whole family was and is still uh, good Democrats. And, uh, and, and, but just, I, I loved uh, those uh, World War II spy movies, the, the ones that were made during the war. And somehow a, a, one of my good friends and I used to just watch these movies all the time where at the, at the end, it would say, uh, buy war bonds in this theater. And, uh, it's like, and so, and I also loved, and for some people, I those all those bad Elvis movies. So, you know, uh, I decided that, you know, we should combine them. And, uh, and so, and that's, that's how, that's what, uh, how Top Secret was, uh, was hatched. But, you know, you collaborated with Top Secret, you, you and your brother and, and Jimmy Abrams collaborated with a, with a Canadian writer named Martin Burke. Right. Um, and, and Martin Burke, whom I knew slightly, um, actually around the same time made a documentary called The KGB Connection about KGB efforts to spread disinformation through the West. So you may not have been conscious of the political yeah. of the political elements of Top Secret, but I think Martin Burke certainly was. I don't know yeah. who did what on, you know, I never understand who writes what in Hollywood anyway. But Well, Martin was... Uh really put on not so much for the jokes but to help us with the story uh -huh. because on airplane we had this wonderful old movie called zero hour have you ever heard of that oh yeah okay so if you if you go on uh, you know youtube and put in you know zero hour and airplane they do scene for scene it's the, you know, it's really the same movie but we had this plot with character art and a story all built in because arthur haley wrote it and I think after airplane, we probably took the the wrong lessons from that, and uh, and 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 thought, well, we just if we just put ninety minutes of jokes together, we have a movie. But I think we neglected to kind of go to school and learn how to do characters. And so, I mean, what I what happened in Top Secret? What, well, a couple of things. It, you know, I I still think it has some of the best jokes we've ever done, but. Uh, you know, Val didn't really have a character uh, in the first act, which he, he needed to have a character, like who was this guy? And it, that's so important in movies. And we kind of ended up learning on the job. And uh, so, so Top Secret is really very cool movie. And we, we show it and still gets huge laughs, you know, all the way through. And, uh, but, but it, it, at the end, uh, it, it's unsatisfying because, you know, even, even in the craziest, stupidest, zaniest comedies, you do need to obey those, those rules, the, those rules of structure. They, the I won't hear you say a word against Top Secret. I know. And, and I, I, I am, I am appalled. I am appalled <laughs> at this illegitimate and unjust trashing. No, but did top I, secret. Say, I said it's a wonderful movie, didn't I? Yes, it is. Now, and I want to point I, out to people who haven't seen it that the single greatest joke for listeners of this podcast comes in a scene in which Val Kilmer is dancing with the the damsel in distress, yeah. uh, played by the British actress Lucy, Lucy Gutteridge, Gutteridge and, and, and she says to him, you're from America, and he says, yes. And she says... My and she's a, she's someone who's trapped in East Germany. That's she's an East daughter of an East German scientist who's been arrested, and she's desperately looking to rescue rescue him and get out, whatever. And she says to him, 
my uncle was from America, but he was one of the lucky ones. He escaped in a balloon during the Jimmy Carter presidency. One of Which, my favorite jokes. It really is. It's that like, is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I want to ask a question about airplane that has uh, nothing to do with politics, but it's, it's something I've thought about for since I saw it as a kid. Um, it seems to me that airplane, aside from being shockingly funny, or virtually every joke lands and and it's so packed full of jokes. I mean, per, you know, minute, it's just uh, relentless. In addition to those, um, it, it sort of invented a kind of new comic sensibility. I don't I don't think there were movies like that um, before it. And it, it, it sort of launched its own genre. Um, comedic yeah, genre. W were you aware of that at the time or when did you become aware of that? We, we, we were aware that it was a complete departure from any comedy that had ever been made before because what we, we didn't think, I mean, we liked, you know, Woody Allen movies and Mel Brooks and, and, and the Marx Brothers. We, 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 we liked those, but what, what made us laugh more than anything was watching serious movies, you know, like, like all those, just anything, you know, black and white, uh, noir or uh, those World War II movies. It, we just thought those were, that's what made us laugh. And so when we saw Zero Hour one, one morning, uh, well, we used to, we used to um, uh, kind of uh, go, we left the tape recorder, the video recorder on overnight and trying to get the commercials to spoof in our show, Kentucky Fried Theater Show. And which was a which was a show you had you you had a theater and you did it in in yeah. in L.A. Right? It was a LA, so it was a nightly kind of sort of like Second City, but it was scripted. Second City, but it was a comedy review. We we ran a show. We had a we had a title. One of the shows was called My Nose, so that our weekly listing in the L.A. Times calendar session uh, was My Nose runs continuously. So that you know we do little little stupid jokes like that. And uh, so we, and in the morning when we, when we saw this, uh, uh, we looking for commercials to spoof, uh, then we, we, we kind of got involved, engrossed, interested in this movie called Zero Hour. And so, and, and the thought was this would be perfect to spoof. But the first thought was we would redub these movies. So in other words, uh, say a character was saying, uh, what time does a plane leave? And then the character would go uh, look at his watch and say uh, at exactly, oh, uh, 800 hours. And we dub in, uh, where's your hand? It's right here at the end of my wrist. And so we, and so then, and the thought went, and we loved these movies. We would laugh hysterically, you know, often after smoking something. And the, and, and so we thought, why not re remake this movie, but with serious actors? So uh, in Zero Hour, there was Sterling Hayden and, and a, a cast of just really hard hitting, humorless actors. And so we thought we cast, uh, you know, Robert Stack or Leslie Nielsen, Peter Graves, Lloyd Bridges, and then have them do, because if you think of it, you know, I am serious and don't call me Shirley, is much funnier with Leslie Nielsen saying it than with Chevy Chase or Bill Murray. And those guys are, are great, funny comedians, but this was going to be a different kind of movie. It was going to be a comedy without comedians where we could connect with the audience directly uh, from the page and not, not through them. We, we kind of um, regarded act, uh, comedians as uh, or, uh, comic actors as middlemen that we didn't need anymore. Can so I ask an, an industry question? Because that dynamic that you're talking about seems to have reversed in recent years where it's comic actors taking dramatic turns more often than the other way around. And in your article, you identify two particularly talented uh, comedic directors and writers that are moving away into a more dramatic area. And you attribute that to industry pressures as well as just you know personal ambition. And it's yeah, sort of well, hard to, to quantify this because box office, you know, big box office comedy numbers have been declining. Fewer studios are making big screen comedies. And some people say, well, this is just small screen competition. And, you know, the, obviously the audiences are different for this sort of thing. But in your article, you sort of allude to 
this being a, a real a real dry, you know exodus from the business of making big screen comedies because well, it, there's just yeah. no return there's no return personally or, or for the studios that finance them well yeah like you know i cited uh, todd phillips who did <laughs> the hangovers there was nothing bigger than the hangovers and uh and, and todd phillips turned to you know non-comedic things and i i just quoted him i read that he said uh, you know, I guess he got attacked a lot or something. So he said, you can't deal with 30 million people on Twitter. So I'm out. And so I, uh, I know Todd Phillips. But I haven't really talked to him about it. But, um, and Craig Mazin, I worked with, you know, tremendously funny, funny com comedy writer who uh, w was a major factor in uh, the scary movie three and four, which, which I directed. And he, he wrote those scripts with, with Pat Prof. And, uh, but Craig stopped really writing comedy after he did the Hangover movies. He did Hangover 2 and 3, I guess, with, uh, with, with Todd Phillips. And then, and then did Chernobyl. So I kind of assumed, I kind of lumped him in with Todd Phillips, who said, you know, I'm out because it's too, too much trouble dealing with the nine percenters. But uh, so I sent, I, I did send Craig the article and he said, you know, great article, of course, and he has to praise me, of course. But um, he but he said, I didn't leave. I just left because he didn't feel that he could, you know, he didn't want to make jokes anymore. It wasn't really because- uh, uh, Look. Todd Phillips, yeah. Uh, Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld have both said they will no longer perform at on college campuses right. because it's it's low it, it it's low return and potentially very high cost. The audiences are uncomfortable. Well, They're yeah, they, they, they get, don't I'm they sure get offended. Those, yeah, I'm sure those guys get hissed. Yeah, when they, yeah. And um, what do they what do they what do they need it for? They, they you know right. they obviously Jerry Seinfeld you know, can buy a university. So he doesn't really need to go perform at a university. Um, and pretty much the same with Chris Rock. So they, so, but what they're saying is uh, this war, this generation of people is being trained in humorlessness, let's say, yeah. and therefore, um, and, and, the, and the rest of us who, who can't abide that. I mean, there is an interesting show on HBO Max called Hacks uh, in which a, there's a generational comic clash between an, 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 an aging or elderly female comedian who is sort of like Joan Rivers and a young, hip, young comedy writer um, who is, you know, uh, bisexual and uh, uh, politically correct, full of all kinds of uh, neuroses and everything. And all she can do is look at this older comedian and say, you can't say that. You shouldn't be saying that. You can't say this. And how dare you say that? And the older comedian's like, what are you, why are you even bothering doing this for a living at all if nothing is funny to you? And then she goes back and sees these tapes of this very conventional uh, older comedian when she was young and, and a, sort of like hot in the 70s and discovers that she was very brilliant. And this is sort of the lesson of the younger comic, which is like, you know, don't don't you be teaching your grandmother how to suck eggs about what's funny. Like, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I'm successful. You're struggling. Why don't you learn something from me instead of being such a loud mouth? And it's sort of an interesting, you know, it's an interesting dynamic, sort of the way you're looking at me right right now. David, right. like the way you're 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 scoffing and scowling because I'm being such a pompous ass here. Well, nobody has even talked. People don't talk about this on the record, but even Will Ferrell has said I can't get certain scripts made because you know I think they're hilarious. Everybody I know thinks they're hilarious, but the studios are afraid of them. Well, I think that's what I was talking about in my article. Uh, you know that they, the studios, actual humans, want to laugh. I think and because they're they're there's still ninety one percent of them out there. Uh, the, who want to laugh and get the joke and but the studio boardrooms that's where we couldn't get uh, airplane made today because they would just take take a look at it just any number of jokes you know a, a bunch of them are just well you're just exploiting women or you're uh, or or the the the, the black dudes uh, uh translating 
that's really too bad that that joke wouldn't, I mean, but uh, what I'm saying is, you know, we, uh, I think I mentioned this, that we showed airplane, you know, very recently last year and people just, you know, they, they love, they, they do laugh. They still laugh at those jokes. Of course, because it's not like the joke doesn't land anymore. It's just that the conscious mind takes over and dictates your, your reaction, you know, your guttural, you know, instinctual laugh is, is, you know, suppressed by the instinct to ooh and, and tisk. Yeah. I mean, but I'm just laughing thinking of June Cleaver saying, I speak jive. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But everything. But you can't is, say that now, right? Well, yeah. everything is intellectualized and politicized and, and they, they, every, they see it as political uh, or just the, you know, the boobies going across screen, you know, it's just, you know, that's, that's intellectualized and, Oh my God, that's exploiting uh, breasts or something. Whatever. You just so, have to uh, call it sex work, and then it's fine. It's that's right. <laughs> so this is not about uh, comedy or wokeness or the destruction of comedy or the sad story here of the efforts to destroy comedy. But I think we need to close by asking you uh, what it was like to work with O.J. Simpson. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I gotta ask. Yeah, I I don't like to. Uh, talk about it all I'll, I'll say this though the last time i was saw him it was at the uh the rap party for naked gun 33 and a third and uh i, I congratulated him on completing the movie and i said goodbye i sold him my knife collection and that's the last <laughs> i ever saw him. bad move david zucker's Destroying Comedy, available for you at commentary.org as part of our Woke the Threat package. David, it's been a delight and an honor to have you with us and to have the last laugh. We'll be back uh, tomorrow uh, with uh, Barry Weiss uh, talking about her article. So for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs> <laughs>